Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, the third Sunday in Lent, March the 20th, 2022. So here we are. We are um, halfway into Lent. Hope you're um, enjoying is probably the wrong word. Most people don't enjoy Lent very much. Um, I hope you're having a good and holy Lent, I guess is the best way to say it. Um, it, It's been sort of an odd week here. It was bitterly cold last weekend, and then now it's going to be like 70 over the next few days, so it's just odd. Uh, Nice, though. Kind of enjoying it. Um, Sort of a busy week. We're um, heading out of town for a few days next week to see my mom, and uh, so looking forward to that. And uh, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of Will's accident. That would be next Monday or tomorrow uh, for those who are listening to it on Sunday. So anyway, we've we've had a busy week and a good week, and um, I'm a little bit tired today. You know, it's it feels like the week of uh, time change always messes you up, right? I mean, and so we had this time change this week, and that's kind of got me messed up. And then, well, the bigger reason I'm probably tired today is I watched a lot of basketball <laughs> yesterday. Stayed up too late, um, so it, it's it's been um, anyway a good week. I think we we are in a good place and and sort of excited about a whole lot of different things. So. Uh, looking forward to um, to getting into the swing of things after being gone this next week coming up. I'm, I'm looking forward to that trip and all that. So it's been, um, you know, we're we're uh, kind of getting into a routine, but it's also time to start getting back out in the woods and start hiking. I'm looking forward to that. So today, here we go into uh, the third Sunday of Lent. We have um, the first lesson is from Exodus 3, 1 to 15. It's the call of Moses by God, because what's happened before this, right? You get the story of Moses, the, the story of his birth. And we, Miriam is referred to as a prophetess throughout Scripture after this. And one of the ways that the, uh, the Jewish people believed that she was a prophetess, the first place indeed, was that the, the story of uh, the discovery of Moses by Pharaoh's daughter in the, uh, in the Nile, in the bulrushes. And so the what they say is is that Miriam believed that things would go well when they put Moses in the basket and and therefore hung around to see what would happen because she believed and knew that, that what was going to happen. And so she was prepared to be Johnny on the spot to suggest, oh, hey, let me get one of the Hebrew women to come and nurse this child and ends up being, well, their mother. And so it, that, that's the place where she got her prophetic chops was there and so that story he grows up there then right and then then they begin he begins to identify with the people that he came from the jews and uh, becomes the the uh wants to would be the would-be deliverer of the jews let's say he steps in whenever um, a jew is being uh, misused mistreated by one of the egyptians and and kills the egyptian and then later there's an argument between two jewish people and he comes in and, and tries to stop that and fix the problem and they turn to him and say you know who are you that to be god and ruler and judge over us are you going to kill us like you killed the egyptian so he knew his crime had become well known and so he took off and he fled ends up becoming the uh, a shepherd for his father-in-law jethro 
Ruel sometimes. It's, it, it's kind of interchangeable, those two names are. And so he, he then becomes the shepherd for him. He's caring for his flocks because he married his daughter. And Jethro is the priest of Midian, which does not mean he's a priest of the one true living God. He's a priest of a different God. So now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. It's, it's Mount Sinai is another name for it. We're going to see that in two different, in, in a later time. And so he's there, and then an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it wasn't consumed. That's the important part. It catches his attention. Um, my seminary professor in Old Testament, uh, different Exodus actually was one of the things that uh, that I had Alan Ross for. He's a wonderful scholar, and I highly recommend all the books that he's written. It's Alan with two A's, not an E. So uh, look him up on Amazon, and, and I highly recommend him. Um, Anyway, he um, he spoke about taking groups of people into the wilderness over there. He had done so over a 30-year period and been many, many times, and that people would try and explain things. See, you see bushes, because of the heat and the dryness, will, will sometimes catch flame out here, and so it's not unusual. And, and the point is, it's not. You're right. It does happen, um, but that's not the issue here. This is a bush that's on fire without being consumed by the fire. So it, it's it's what catches Moses's attention. So in other words, whenever you say it happens in the wilderness, well, yeah, it does, but it normally doesn't capture someone's attention because it happens. But here it does specifically because why the bush is not burned. (laughs) When the Lord saw that he saw that, he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Same thing that, that happens with Abraham, right? When he's told to go, uh, and take his son, his only son, the one that he loves, up onto the mountain, um, and sacrifice him there. So here we we get this same thing. It's it's called by name and then a response. I here I am. Then he said, "Don't come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground." Which is exactly the same kind of thing he's going to say to the people when he brings the six hundred thousand Israelites out of Egypt to this same mountain. He's going to tell them. Stay away from the mountain. Don't even touch it. Don't touch it because it's holy. And so here is the same thing. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. Now, I'll tell this story that um, we visited a church one time on Christmas Eve. Uh, Never been there. Didn't know anything about it. It happened to be a charismatic Episcopal church, and we visited there just because I I wanted to see. I was looking at different denominations, and I wanted to see what their worship looked like. And so... We went in, Suzanne and I did, and went in and sat down. We were the first people to come in. And then over the course of the next couple of minutes, people kept coming and go, women uh, kept coming and going, and, and they didn't have their shoes on. And so began to be a little concerned that we had broken some sort of um, unwritten or, or uh, rule or regulation that's like, I, I, we're, we're sitting there having this discussion about, is this holy ground? Is that So do they not wear shoes? And, I mean, just at the moment, that we were getting ready to get up and go out and, and leave our shoes somewhere and ask somebody where would we leave our shoes. Thankfully, God provided people to start coming in wearing shoes. Um, what it was was these women later danced in the, <laughs> in the service. And so that's the reason they didn't have shoes on. But at the moment, man, I felt like we had transgressed something significant and we might ought to you know, slip out or something. Um, 
But thankfully, before we went out and made idiots of ourselves and asked, uh, do we need to leave our shoes somewhere? Um, people started coming in and, and I didn't have to go through the embarrassment of asking that question of somebody and having them laugh in my face. They probably would have been too polite to do that. If it had been me, I would have laughed, but I would, you wouldn't have heard me laugh. I would have smiled pretty big. So he says, so he tells him not to come near, take your sandals off your feet for, for the, the sandals bring defilement. Uh, um, and he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So he's identified himself as, as I'm the covenant God. I'm the God that, that, that is, is the same one. He knows now, okay, I'm speaking to the same God that our ancestors spoke with. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God, as well he ought be. So he, he's, he's understanding the poignancy and the power of the moment and the danger of the moment as well. And it's interesting, later on this same mountain, he's going to ask him to see his glory. And God says, you can't. You can't see that and live. Here, Moses naturally comes into the presence of the divine and and recognizes that once he knows who he's speaking with, that he should hide his face. And then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And, and here Moses could have said, yeah, me too. I was there. Remember, this is what happened before. I, I heard their cry and I tried to step in. Well, you tried to step in in your own power and in your own time. You did that without, without asking me what you should do. I didn't tell you to do it. You decided all on your own to step into that situation. And it didn't work out there, did it, big boy? So he said, God says, I've surely seen their affliction and I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings. Is there any more wonderful thing than knowing that God knows your sufferings? I mean, I know their sufferings. And, and it's with great sympathy and empathy and, and love and concern that you would hear that. I know their sufferings and even greater. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. I mean, that's the, the miracle and the mystery and the wonder and the awe and, and the delight of the incarnation. God knows our sufferings and comes down in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, um, to deliver us, not out of the hands of the Egyptians, but, but out of the bondage of sin and death. And, and then also, to I've not come down just to deliver them. I've come down also to bring them up to that land, out of that land, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites the land that I promised your fathers. I haven't forgotten my promise. A long, long time has elapsed, 400 plus years, and yet I have not forgotten my people, and I've not forgotten my promise. They are my people because they are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Come, I will send you. Sorry, I skipped a little bit. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. So he's repeating, I've heard their cry, but the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which, with which the Israelites oppressed them. So he's circling back, as Jin Saki would say, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. And here he says, I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So, so we know that we have a pattern here. God says these things, and then he says some details about what he's going to do. And then he comes back and, and says why he's going to do it a second time. It's because I've seen and I've heard. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Well, wait a minute. You said you had come down uh, to bring 
you come down to deliver them and to bring them up. We mean send me. And this is the point that I made a couple of weeks ago about the sermon that I preached in Rwanda, and that is the two things you can know that God is saying is do not fear, right? Don't fear and and follow me. And, and so the thing is, is the reason we need to, if we're following God, why would we ever have any fear? Well, the, the, it's because he's going to do things like this. <laughs> he's going to send you. And that's what he's done. He sent us. But he's also promised us something, right? And that is that he would be with us even to the end of the age. Here, he says, come, I'll send you to Pharaoh that you you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And, and I've said before that, that the sin of the golden calf um, if grammatically speaking, isn't the sin of trying to replace God. It's, it's the sin of trying to replace Moses. Because there's two different words for the actions and the bringing them up that God uses. And so he says, I, I will bring them up. That's one Hebrew verb. And then when he says, you will bring them, my people, out of Egypt, it's a second kind of word. And it indicates that they're not the primary actor. They're an intermediary to do this work for the one who's actually doing the work. And so here, that's that's what he's saying is, is that, that you're going to bring them up, but he uses a different word for bringing them up than he uses for his own work previously. So it's not that, that Moses is having a burden laid on him that's too difficult for him to bear. God's the primary actor, and Moses is the secondary actor and an intermediary to accomplish what the first one intended in the same way that we, all of us, are apostles. We are those sent with a message. But the primary actor is Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, right? Because I can't bring anybody into salvation. That's a work of the Holy Spirit that's not given to me to do. But I have nonetheless something to do with the process if I cooperate and if I agree to be sent. So Moses's response to that is, who am I? Which is exactly the question he was asked by the Israelites. Who made you ruler and judge over us? And Moses wants to get this clear on the front end. I know what I'm going to have to answer when I get there. They've already asked this question, and, and I haven't known the answer for 40 years while I've been out tended sheep. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. My presence will be with you when you do this. And this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you when you bring... When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And, you know, if I'm Moses, I'm, I'm thinking out uh, to myself, probably not going to say it out loud, but I'm thinking at least, that's not a very good sign. A sign is something I get in advance, not once I've done the thing you asked me to do. But, but he says, you're going to bring them all back here and you're going to worship on this mountain, and that's the sign that I'm giving you. You're speaking with God. <laughs> Do you really need a sign um, that God's going to accomplish it? You know, you got to step out in faith, and you got to believe that He's able to accomplish everything that He does, that He that He sets out to do. Nothing will stop it. And then Moses said to God, "If just just if if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what's His name, what'll I say to them?" And this is not the first time that this word has been used, by the way, but it's the first time God said it directly. He says to Moses, Yahweh, I am who I am. I mean, to me, that's a beautiful thing. If, if, if you ask me, who are you? 
then then my response might I mean I'm going to tell you my name but but if you're saying I think I know you from somewhere or you seem familiar then I'm going to try and figure out some things right and you know okay so I'm I'm John Green who was born in 1960 in Chattanooga Tennessee I grew up there I went to um you know, this kindergarten and that kindergarten, and then I went to the center school, and then I went to um, the Baylor school for boys at the time, not now, um, but I went to the Baylor school, and then from there, I went to Suwannee for a little bit, and then I went to UTC for a little bit, and then I went to UT Knoxville and graduated from there and lived in Knoxville. I mean, I'm going to tell you all these things. I'm going to tell you who my parents are, right? I'm going to tell you my, my, my father was Jack Green. He worked for American National Bank. Uh, then became SunTrust. My, my mother worked at the school that I went to. She worked, you know, she. Did, this is who she was. This is where they grew up. I'm going to situate my play, my, myself in space and time so that you can maybe connect somewhere and go, aha, that's how I know you. God doesn't do that. He doesn't have any antecedents. There's nothing before him. He is. He is existence. And it's important that we, that we get that nailed down, that he always has been. He is the only necessary being in the universe. He chose to create us. And so when he says, I am, that, that means something that no other God really um, can say. And so he's spoken this word, and it's a word that's not unfamiliar to them, but now it takes on a different connotation and importance. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I mean, the profundity of that moment is, is more than anybody could stand, I think. I mean, you just you know, to know that he is existence itself, being itself, it's so overwhelming that it's unbelievable. And, and it, it's, I've told this before. It's been a while since I've told it, actually. Um, years ago, I had gotten away from the Lord, and I decided that—this is 30 years ago—I decided that I, that I wanted to try and come back, but— my way of looking at it was I'm going to read the Bible, but, but what I'm not going to do is read the Gospels right away because I didn't want to be confronted with the reality of Jesus. And so I read through Genesis, and I was fascinated, and I loved the stories and everything. And then I got to this moment right here at Sinai with Moses, and I heard those words with Moses, and I was devastated. Really, John? You've been running from I am? How's that working out? I mean, it's a powerful thing to realize that he is being itself. He is existence itself. He is everywhere in all places at all times. And so he, he said, T tell them this. And then he said, okay, say to this, this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so now they don't pronounce it. They don't, they don't um, pronounce it at all. They don't say that name out loud because it's so holy so here then so we, we see this thing that god using human agency to accomplish his objectives and he's using this man moses who is less than thrilled about being sent on this task that he tried to choose for himself and carry out 40 years before but now he's thinking rationally before he was thinking out of his love for his people and now he's thinking rationally and God overwhelms his reason when he says, I am. In the gospel today, there was, there was some present at that very time as Jesus is going to Jerusalem here, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. I mean, this is a huge abomination, but it's also a shot at the Galileans because the Galileans were considered to be less than because they were further and further from the center of Judaism, and they were more intermingled and intermixed with the people around them. And so the, 
they're basically taking a shot at the Galileans, and they're also then taking a shot at Jesus and most of his disciples. And he answered them, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So it begins by, by kind of affirming what they said, right? I mean, do you, do you think they were worse sinners than the other Galileans? And so it sounds like, well, he's on our side. He's, he's affirming that all Galileans are sinners. Um, and, and so because they suffered in this way. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Oh, wait, he's not just talking about Galileans here. Or, he says, those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, that's, well, in Jerusalem. (laughs) So uh, you want to compare yourselves to the Galileans and find them wanting, well, how about this? How about this tragedy that happened as well? And, And he says, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So he's turned the tables on them in that thing. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So is he saying there's a one-to-one correspondence between sin and, um, and these tragedies? And the answer is clearly no, because he, what he's saying is, is that, that tragedy happens. It happened to those 18 people in uh, the Tower of Siloam fell on and died, right? I mean, were they the worst people in Jerusalem is what he's saying? You know, is, is that what you're telling me? So in other words, what he's saying is, do you believe in karma so the worst have these tragedies happen to him, and he's pointing out, no, that tragedy happens. That's the kind of world we live in. We live in a world that's busted and broken by sin, and therefore you can expect these kinds of things can happen. It's not God's punishment on them that they died in that way. He's not pointing to them and saying, those are the worst people. Paul, in fact, says, I'm the chief sinner because I, I didn't greet Jesus. I didn't believe that Jesus was truly the Messiah until I got a personal revelation from heaven. I'm the chief sinner because I persecuted the church. I thought I knew all this stuff, and then what I found was I didn't know anything at all, and and I'm not innocent because I didn't understand. No, I'm guilty. But I'm thankful, though, that Jesus prayed for me from the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So it's not lack of knowledge it's not the sin that we're that we're condemned for. And Paul says, all what Jesus is saying here is, is that all are sinners. Tragedy happens. That's the kind of world you live in because of sin. And so, so no, don't do those kinds of things. Don't say that's God's punishment on those people because it happened to them. Because something worse could happen to you, you know. And and it's it, 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 the world is random. At some level, I mean, uh, things happen, and you can't blame the people who who they happen to. I mean, are we going to blame the Ukrainian people for what's going on? No, of course we don't. And so, no, they're they're not worse than us. Those who are killed, those innocent casualties of war, can't be considered worse sinners than us. God's not punishing them in that way. No, we, we have to get a better view of an understanding of the world. It's the same kind of idea that Job's friends bring to the table, right? We know you must have sinned. These things happened to you, these bad things. Man, you must have done something really awful. Why don't you go ahead and admit that? His wife's got a pretty good idea that he didn't do it because her response is curse God and die. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. I want to understand and that's the reason that I call this faith-seeking understanding, because, because I have the faith to believe 
I have the faith to believe that God is in control. He's sovereign over all things. I have the faith to believe all the things that we confess in the creeds. I, I, I believe absolutely, without any question, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by him. I believe that he was crucified on the cross and, and that, that his sacrifice there is the sacrificial atonement for my sins, and not only my sins, but the sins of the whole world, and that his resurrection means that I, too, will be resurrected with him, that he is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, pleading my case, along with yours and everybody else's, before who believe before the Father, and that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe all those things. But once I believe those things, then what I really need is a new way of understanding the world around me and my place in it. And so faith is seeking understanding. I start with faith, and then I begin to seek understanding because I realize that a lot of things that I have believed prior to coming to faith are wrong. They're not adequate explanations for what's going on because that's seen it from a human perspective. And so we got to get a different understanding, and that's what Jesus is saying here. Is he said, no, 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 you have a very human understanding of things. And this has got to get changed. So he tells a parable. He says, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I will come, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, cut it down. And so what he's not expressly saying here is that, I'm, I'm that guy. I'm here looking for fruit. And even though it's my tree, I'm willing to cut it down. Because it's not doing what it's intended to do. And it's taking up space. And that space matters to me. My name matters to me. And so that's what's going on here. Is he's not arguing with him about who's better, Galileans or Jerusalemites. No, he, he says all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That, that you all are sinning. And, and he says that very, very clearly. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It doesn't mean that, that their, their blood's going to be mixed with the sacrifice or that the, the towers are going to fall on them. No, you're just going to die, just like Adam and Eve. And, and there, there's a little bit of a quote in that. You will all likewise perish. You will surely die, is what God said. Un, but here he adds, unless you repent. You've got to turn around from the way in which you're headed, and you've got to break off this prejudice you have against the Galileans, and then you've got to begin to believe. You've got to begin to follow the Father. You've got to love one another. In the epistle today, it's 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verses 1 to 13, Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, the, the, he's talking about the ones in the Exodus, were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, and then they passed through the Red Sea. And he's likening that to baptism because that's when they became the community and individually all members of that community was when they all passed through together. It's like the church. And so we incorporate people through the waters of baptism. Peter uses this same symbolism when he speaks about baptism. He said, all ate the same spiritual food, that would be the manna, and all drank the same spiritual drink. And then he goes on to say, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. It's an interesting symbol that he uses here, but it's not unique to Paul. 
actually, because in uh, Judaism, in rabbinic Judaism, what they taught was this rock actually did follow or accompany them in the wilderness, that it's the same rock every time that it provides water. And what they refer to it as is Miriam's well, because they say that, that it's there because of the merits of Miriam. And the way that they look at it is to say that once Miriam dies, it's no longer the same. They, they, when you see the death of Miriam, right after that, they are at, they, they, they're again at a place they call Meribah, again, which is the place of strife. They come to this place right after Miriam's death, and they don't have water again. So they have these crises over water on two different occasions. One is early in the uh, stories, right after they cross the Red Sea, after the Song of Miriam and all that stuff, the Song of Moses, and Miriam and, and encourages the women to join in to that. And then the crisis regarding water, and then they have another crisis, that one's with the, with the, uh, with the bitter waters. And then they, they come to the second one, and it's rock comes, and Moses strikes the rock because God tells him to, and the water flows out. After Miriam's death, they have another crisis around water, but it's the first one since that second one where Moses struck the rock. And now Moses is angry with them. And he calls them rebels and he strikes the rock in spite of the fact God just said, speak to the rock. He's angry. He's also mourning and he's in grief over the death of his sister, who was really his own savior in so many ways. So if it hadn't been for her, then then there would never probably have been that same kind of connection. So, so now Miriam's dead. He strikes the rock in spite of the fact that God told him to speak to the rock now. There's a tenderness that happens, and, and Moses, in his anger, frustration, grief, and all that stuff, strikes the rock, and he's not allowed to enter the promised land because he sinned against God in multiple ways, I believe, in that place. He, he, he got so angry with the people, he no longer identified with them, and then he said, must we bring water from the rock as though it were him doing this work? So the, the, he, he presumed and then now he can't be there. And one of the reasons to speak to the rock is, is that it no longer requires an individual to act. Moses is not always going to be with him, but God is. Jesus says he's, he will come in the, in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll send the Holy Spirit to be with you. But he says, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Because they're all one. I mean, it, it reaffirms the uh, monotheism of Deuteronomy 6 that God is one. And, and here, Paul says, that spiritual rock was actually Christ that followed them in the wilderness. And, and so, like I said, there's already a belief in Judaism that this thing, uh, this rock accompanied them. This is not different rocks. No, this is the same rock that accompanied them throughout the wilderness. And so it's part of God's way of being with them, which is what he had promised. So it's pillar cloud by fire, pillar, pillar cloud by day, fire by night. And and also the rock. And so he says, Paul says that was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So, I mean, none of the generation that came into the wilderness came out of the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And so Paul's repeating the message of Jesus. He says, look, don't blame them. None of them came out. The same thing could happen to you. They took place as an example for us that we might see exactly what Jesus said. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He said that we might not desire evil as they did. Don't be idolaters. And now he's going to tell us what, they, what he means by that. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And that's at the time of the, um, the creation of the, the calves. That, that's, that's a quote 
from that part of Genesis, uh, Exodus. He says, we must not indulge in sexual, in sexual immorality, if some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, that's opaque to us, but Jewish belief is that, that that's playing in the previous one. They sat down to eat and rose up, eat and drink and rose up to play. That word, play, there, they interpret that and because they know the language better than we <laughs> that it, But Paul did. Paul interprets it this way, is sex, that they basically had a big orgy because those calves kind of represent Baal and fertility gods, and that's the worship of fertility gods is for his people to have orgies so that Baal will do the same with his consort and then provide the rain to fertilize the fields. And so that's sympathetic magic. So that he said, don't be like them. Don't, don't indulge in sexual immorality as they did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. That's the event that he's re- referring to. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Can he do this? Can he provide this? Can he, where is he? No, don't ask those questions all the time. Just believe that he is with you because he promised he would be. Nor grumble, he says, as some of them did and were desire, des- destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So, yes, they happened to them, but don't miss the warning, he says. Don't look back and think, well, they were awful. It's, it's no wonder God did this to them. What he's saying is, no, 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 he, that happened to them, absolutely. But don't miss the, the teaching and the understanding of it. And the understanding of it is the same could happen to you. This is exactly the same thing Jesus just taught. So Paul's saying, persevere, be on your guard, be aware always, examine yourselves. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't stand in your own strength because you don't have any. And that's exactly what the collect began with, um, which is, Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls that we may be defended from all adversities that might happen to the body and all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul. Be on your guard. Recognize your powerless. Recognizing your sinfulness. Recognizing the weakness of your humanity. That you will indeed perish as far as this life is concerned, but you need not die because you can have eternal life by believing in the one who was resurrected from the dead. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. There's nothing new under the sun. God knows these things. It's common to us. It, there, there's, there's no new thing that, that you're going to be faced with that, that you can misunderstand. God's faithful, and he won't let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so that's the thing is leaning on the everlasting arms, relying on him in all things, not on ourselves. Acknowledge your own weakness, your frailty, and your fallibility, but God's eternal goodness, power, strength that he's given to you in the power of the Holy Spirit. And remember that Jesus promised that as long as we were about the work he was given us to do, that he would be with us even to the end of the age as we go about that work. So let's stand not in our own strength, but in his. Let's, let's constantly be aware of our own fallibility and our weaknesses and rely on the strength that's available only in him.